Welcome to The Hidden Island, a podcast where we talk about local island history. My name's Fiona Steele, and I'll be your host for this journey. It sure feels nice to be back in this rowboat after a year spent on land. It's stored well, too. No leaks or paint chips. Sorry, it's a little hard to row and hold a mic at the same time. Let me just set this down where you can still hear me. Alright, we're ready to find some new shores with Season 2 of The Hidden Island by the PEI Museum and Heritage Foundation. Today's episode is all about migration, patterns of living, and the many people this island has become home to. What better way to start than with the creation of Epiglip for the Mi'kmaq, the first people to call this place home? I talked to Riley Bernard, a Mi'kmaq comic book artist who's been researching Mi'kmaq legends for a couple years now. His interest stems back to his involvement in the theater production Mi'kmaq Legends in 2012. The show kind of would get a little stale over the years where it's like most of the cast members wanted to do more legends, like perform different stories. And we started looking into that a bit more. And I got really fascinated with uh, the legends and I wanted to do more with it. And then one of our managers, he asked if I could make like a Mi'kmaq Legends graphic novel. And I always thought it was kind of a cool idea, but but it was like... It seemed like really ambitious to me. And I was like, yeah, that sounds cool. Shrug it off. <laughs> and then in 2019, I started making some comics and I started to figure that out. Riley's first comic was a stick person's collection. So I did more research and I was like, how do I not make a graphic novel out of this stuff? It's like so fantastic, right? Like the stories that they tell of their Mi'kmaq war heroes and chiefs and shamans and stuff they're they're so mystical like they have all these powers and they're they're almost like superheroes right so i started uh doing some writing and then i started working on it and it's turning out pretty good (laughs) stories about hunters so great they could lie down next to a moose or warriors who were invincible are just a few he told me i'll attach a link to riley's comic book in the show notes so you can go check it out Some of the stories Riley told me dated back to before European contact, so I asked about the creation of Epiquit. Glooscap helped create the island by placing a piece of land there. That's pretty much all I know related to the creation of Epiquit. According to a story by John Joe Sark, a Mi'kmaq elder, the creator turned to Glooscap and said, It's time to create people, I think. So the great spirit shot an arrow into a sacred birch tree and the bark fell away. The bark became Olnu, the people. Next, the creator shaped a handful of clay into a crescent and asked Glooscap to place it in the sea. That became Epiguit, and then Glooscap shot another arrow into the sacred birch tree. The bark that fell away became everything the people would need for survival, like canoes and bows and arrows. Then Glooscap taught the people everything they needed to know to survive. Some say Mi'kmaq people in pre-contact times would migrate according to the seasons, although that depends on who you ask. I remember hearing that pre-contact Mi'kmaq people didn't typically migrate. They didn't have a reason to, right? They would just live. Mm -hmm. Everything they need would be their animals to hunt for their skins and their meat. That's how they survived. And they they just dress for the weather and then you're fine. When contact happened, 
the men would come in their ships to the shore. So that's when it started. They they would travel to shore to trade whenever it was like the summertime and stuff when ships would come. And then they would go inland to hunt like bigger game. And then in the summertime again, they would come back in shore, meet the sailors and trade. That's where I remember hearing that start. <laughs> yeah, it could be wrong. I'm not like a professor or anything, but <laughs> I thought that was neat. And then the French people came and they just wanted to farm. So when the French showed up, they asked for land and then we gave it to them. This would be in the early 18th century. But if we skip forward to the mid-1700s, we'll find this island is being called Ile Saint-Jean by many. Although Epiguit remains unceded territory, thousands of French and English settlers have long since begun colonizing this island. This brings us to our second pattern of migration, although migration isn't the right word at all. Expulsion is more accurate. My name is uh, Georges Arsenault. I'm an island uh, historian and uh, folklorist. Georges is well known for his research in Acadian history. It's common knowledge that thousands of Acadians were deported from the island shortly after English forces took control of the land. Acadians from the Maritimes were sent all over, mainly to France and the southern states, although some did manage to stay hidden. Of course, there's about 3,000 islanders that were deported towards France, uh, but half of them didn't make it. They either drowned or died during the crossing of sickness or malnutrition. Uh, three, two of the ships uh, sunk and one went shipwrecked. So in those three boats, the Violet, the Duke William, and the Ruby, there was about 900 people, and there's about over 700 you know, who, who, who died, who, uh, who didn't make it to, to the shore, of course. So that's a, a big chunk of uh, islanders, people who were living here in, on the island, Lille Saint-Jean, in the 1750s. By the time many Acadians were finding their way back to the island shores, the atmosphere wasn't a whole lot better. Acadians were able to live on Ile Saint-Jean, but their opportunities were limited. When the island was divided up into 67 lots and then uh, given to uh, large landowners, uh, mainly uh, British, the Acadians couldn't own their land like many of the other, other settlers who came to the island. So that caused a problem because uh, they knew that they could get uh, free land in Cape Britain or even in New Brunswick or elsewhere. So that's when many Acadians started leaving the island to uh, find farms or land that they, they could own and not have to pay rent you know, every year. Looking forward to the 19th century, this island now knows a new name, Prince Edward Island. It's named in honor of Prince Edward, Duke of Kent. Prince Edward is the commander-in-chief of British forces in North America, but he's never been here. In fact, he recommends the island be re-annexed to Nova Scotia, although islanders don't know this. But that's a side note. In the early to mid-1800s, many Acadians were still leaving to create a life elsewhere. Between the fall of 18. 60 and uh, 62, there's about 50 families or 50 young families that left Rustico to settle on the Metapedia Valley that's just uh, north of Camelton, New Brunswick, in the Gaspé Peninsula. If you go to uh, Saint Alexis de Metapedia, which is one of the communities there settled by the Acadians, you see uh, a street called Rustico, another one called uh, Galan. The mid-1800s is also when outmigration really begins in general on PEI. 
By outmigration, I mean a voluntary decision to leave. Sure, many islanders felt they had to leave, as we'll find out, but that's different than being forced to leave or exiled. My name's Ed MacDonald. I teach history here at the University of Prince Edward Island, and my expertise is in island history. You might remember Ed from season one. Considering the topic we're going to speak about today, I come from a singularly unadventurous family because there are nine of us, and all nine of us still live on Prince Edward Island. Some of us left to go to school, some of us left to work, but every one of us ended up back here. And that is not the island story. I wanted to dig deep into what Ed called the island story of outmigration. Well, it's a regional sort of pattern, but arguably the pattern starts a little earlier on Prince Edward Island. So there's a significant recession in 1857, and you do see a little impulse of migration as a result of that. But really, it begins to gather way in the 1870s. And then it flows strongly in the 1880s and 90s through to the Depression. During the Depression years, it basically shriveled up. Because if the major reason people were leaving was economic opportunity, there were no jobs anyplace. So there was no reason to leave. That's the thing. People weren't leaving because they didn't like this island. They left because they needed work. Between 1891 and 1901, the island's population fell by 6,000 people. In the next decade, it decreased by another 10,000 people, despite having one of the highest birth rates in the nation. And when you only started with 110,000 people, losing 16,000 leaves a huge mark. But what happened to all the jobs? Here's what happened. Shipbuilding was no longer a prime industry in PEI. The ambitious railway building project proved to be a financial disaster in Canada. And once all the land was cleared, no new farms could be created. You can only subdivide a farm so many times and still make a living. But the most important aspect? Elsewhere paid a lot more money, especially the Boston states. Yeah, the concept of the Boston states, that's a colloquial term. Essentially, the boundaries are fluid, but they encompass the northeastern part of the United States. So we're, we're talking as far south as Rhode Island and Connecticut, getting into New York State, to Pennsylvania, places that aren't considered part of New England. But the Boston states, I've always equated with the New England area. So it's a little bit larger than that. And it's called the Boston states because many out, you know, migrants went to Boston. The Boston states were common destinations for Acadian Islanders as well. You know, the Acadian leadership of the time, uh, most of the leadership would encourage them not to go to New England, to the Boston states, but to stay in the Maritimes and uh, settle and, and create new Acadian settlements. But of course, uh, young people knew the difference, you know, of going out and cutting down the trees and cleaning land. That was tough work. work. And uh, it was not, you know, a very easy life. And they knew because some of their friends or neighbors had gone to work in the factories in New England that life was easier. <laughs> So people left for harvest excursions, the lumber industry, other seasonal work, or jobs you might find in PEI, just with higher wages. This isn't a gendered issue either. Both men and women left, although the nature of their work was different. While increasingly women were welcomed into the workplace, it was still understood that when they married, 
they would leave their job in order to raise their family. And so that still meant that women were looking for employment. They were looking for careers during that time period between you know, childhood and marriage, even if they subscribed to that kind of ethos. And so there were limited opportunities for employment for women because employment for women, generally speaking, was an extension of the accepted kinds of work that women did in the home. Accepted jobs could include teaching, nursing, sewing in textile factories, or typing in an office, that sort of thing. Apparently, while women and men both left in large numbers, some research has shown that women tended to not go as far from home. And they didn't go as far from home, not because they lacked adventure spirit, but because they were on call, if you will. So they were more likely to be called back home if mother got sick or if there was a crisis in the household, whereas the males who migrated out tended to have less restraint that way or less sense of of obligation imposed on them or felt. While opportunities may have been plentiful for women in the late 1800s, it still came with limits. But that's like everything else in society at the time. No voting, no divorce, no work while married. You get the picture. Another side note. So we've covered how people left. You know, PEI wasn't special in this way. People left all the time in other provinces too. The reason why this matters in PEI history is because no one replaced them. Instead, the population just dropped, and the loss of these people was felt so much more because of it. Many islanders, uh, whether from necessity or restlessness or spirit of adventure, left the island, sometimes quite reluctantly. And not many who did shook the dust of the island from their feet and never felt any longing to go back. There are certainly exceptions, and I can cite exceptions, but many people... Expatriate islanders tend to, like other people who migrate or other people that emigrate, they straddle two worlds. One world is the one that they have moved to, and the other world is the one they came from. In a way, many islanders never fully left. Take this club for example. In 1900, Boston's Prince Edward Island Benevolent Society Association was formed. I know, it's a mouthful but its goal was to allow expatriate islanders to reconnect and help each other. It was popular, too. Their 1909 annual reunion had up to 1,400 people in attendance. As well, by 1907, there were enough Maritimers abroad to publish a magazine just for them. Michael McGinnis was an expatriate printer from Summerside living in Oakland, California. He created the Maple Leaf, a monthly magazine with news from back home and stories on what other expatriates were doing. And it was chock full of stories every year about someone living in New York or living in California or living in Saskatchewan who motored home to Prince Edward Island to visit the home place and regaled the readers with stories about how things hadn't changed and how they saw their old friends and their old scenes and haunts. So it was filled with nostalgia, but also filled with success stories because the population decline on PEI caused a crisis of identity or confidence, if you will. And so every time someone from the Maritimes, especially anytime anyone from the island, succeeded someplace else, 
it was a sign that our failure to grow as an economy wasn't our fault. Given an opportunity someplace else, islanders prospered and succeeded. And the Maple Leaf was how you found out about that. This cycle of out-migration became a way of life until the Great Depression in the 1930s. With no jobs abroad, many islanders returned home. When World War II began, many islanders left, this time to fight. PEI had the second highest rate of enlistment in Canada. That's interesting because in the First World War, we had the second lowest enlistment rates. However, no group provided more recruits per capita than Mi'kmaq soldiers from Lennox Island. In World War I alone, 32 of 64 eligible men left. It's also important to note that these men fought for a country that didn't treat or consider them as citizens. If you want to learn more about this, check out Olnoe's podcast, Jigue, and the episode, Stories and Highlights of Epiguet Mi'kmaq Veterans. Besides leaving for war, many islanders left to work in factories. Instead of the Boston states, Ontario and Quebec were now the places to be. Even during the Second World War, I was told by some people who moved to uh, Montreal to work, they were teachers and left uh, their school in the middle of the year to work in Montreal, <laughs> you know, in factories where the pay was uh, much better. Then the oil boom comes along in the 70s, and whenever the oil does boom, people go to Alberta. Because it employs all kinds, right? It employs people with low education, it employs people with high education. When I graduated from high school in 1974, many of my classmates went out west. That was the place to go then. The curious pattern that's emerged in the last number of years is the phenomenon of people who continue to live on Prince Edward Island, but they work out west. And so they're gone for a month at a time, and then they're home for two weeks. And they're gone for two months at a time, or a month at a time, and they're home for two weeks. And that's a current reality for many people and island families. When we return, we'll be talking about who gets to be an islander. Do you have to be born one, or can you become one? We'll also hear from some islanders who returned, and what keeps some people away from PEI today. Talk to you in part two. <laughs>